We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning. How are you? No, that's it? Okay. We're going to try that again. And, um, and if you're really not doing good, just keep the same answer you did. I'm not trying to manipulate anyone, but I think some of you might just not have been ready for the question. Just caught a little off guard. So for those of you caught off guard and you're actually doing okay, then we'll get a better answer this time. Good morning. How are you? Oh, okay. Some of you really aren't okay, and that's all right. It's a good, this is a good place to not be okay, but uh, man, we are glad that you are here um, with us at Emmaus. It is good to be gathered with you today here uh, in the park, Emmaus at the Park. Uh, thanks for joining us out here. One service at nine o'clock. Um, beautiful day for this. I was a little worried this morning. I live in Smithville, and so this morning I was a uh, little, is that better? Are we good? Okay. This morning it was 4% chance of rain in Smithville, and, uh, and it was downpouring. And so that made me a little nervous about what would be going on here, but this is gorgeous, this is wonderful. I'm glad that we're able to, to gather together and to do this today. For those of you that are hanging out with us or those that didn't plan to hang out with us afterwards, we'd love to have you hang out. We're just totally informal, just hanging out, meeting people, having conversation, letting the kids play, all those sorts of things. So please stay, hang out with us as long as you want. We technically have this pavilion um, I believe until two o'clock. And so we'd love to have you just kind of be here with us. And then I just want to say a thank you to like our, our members who did so much work to actually make this happen. The, the elders have crazy ideas like, hey, let's do an outdoor service. And then it's really um, other people who do all the work out of that crazy idea. And so our production team was loading up stuff um, all day yesterday and then setting up early this morning, making sure this worked, as well as others getting water bottles and bringing out hospitality stuff and all of that. So just want to say thank you to those of you who put in so much work to help us be able to just gather together in one service and be outside. It's much appreciated from you. Hey, if you are a visitor with us today, then my name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here, and, and we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we, we hope that you find um, uh, this morning to be an encouraging time, uh, um, kind of a, a helpful time in your walk with the Lord, as well as in meeting other people. Uh, we'd love to connect with you uh, today, specifically, um, just in conversation after the service, just to, to find someone. I see a lot of you here who are not covenant members of our church, so it might take you a little bit to find some people who are not, but, but people who are like out walking around the edges, they have name tags on, um, they're part of our hospitality team, you're welcome to go to them, introduce yourself, they would love to meet you and, uh, and see your face. You can also go to Emmaus Case kc.com forward slash connect. That's EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. And there you can fill out a digital connect card as well as some other opportunities to get plugged in with us as a church. So we'd love to have you do that with us. Hey, in two weeks, two Sundays from today, the 24th, um, following each service, we are going to have an informational meeting um, in theater number two at Screenland Armor. Um, and that informational meeting is going to be about how you as an individual and we as a church can be involved in caring for thousands of Afghan refugees who are coming to our city. Right? They're beginning to arrive now, and we want to um, 
equip those of you who have a desire to be a part of helping with that in some form or fashion to have the resources and the knowledge you need to be able to do that. And so um, Ellen Tanner is going to be um, leading that informational meeting following both services in theater number two. It's the theater right outside the theater we meet in for worship, right to the right when you're coming out. And she'll be holding that meeting on the 24th following both services. It'll be about a 15-minute meeting. So it won't hold you up long for your day, but just give you the resources you need for next steps towards that. And then also, if you have children, uh, as you know, we've been moving back towards Emmaus Kids. And next Sunday, beginning, um, beginning next Sunday at our 1045 service, we're actually expanding all the way through second grade. And so if you have um, K through second graders, uh, that's not offered at the 9 a.m. yet, but will be offered at the 1045 beginning next Sunday. And so want to remind you of that. Hey, let's pray and then let's read our scripture and look at what the Lord has for us today. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter four, by the way. If you uh, are not there, you can take your Bible and turn there, Ecclesiastes chapter four. Also, before we pray, let me point this out. We have a lot of water bottles over here. If you get thirsty, parched, um, you're about to pass out, come get a water bottle, grab some shade, um, and, and hydrate, all right? We'd love for you. Those are yours to just take. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace to us today. You have been very kind to bring us here. Father, that the opportunity for us to all gather together in one gathering to see each other, to to um, smile at each other, to greet each other, to sing with each other, to confess with each other, and now to hear your word together. Father, what a joy and a kindness it is from you. And so we pray that you would um, use your word, press it in upon our hearts this morning, encourage us and convict us with it. We need to hear from you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter four, continuing our journey through this book. Let's read it. We're in the whole chapter today. So let's read all of chapter four and then we'll come back and walk through it. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied, or never, um, his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. 
I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that, along with that youth who was, who was to stand in the king's place. There is no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also, surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. We're gathered together today, all together, kind of celebrating a, a, an emphasis that we've been calling fall together, where we're wanting to come together and build relationships with each other again after a season of isolation. And we just happen to be doing that today in this um, part together with a text that is about um, removing isolation and coming together. And that wasn't planned. It wasn't intentional. I didn't even know that until two weeks ago after I started studying this text. But in the Lord's kindness, he has us together on a text where we're talking about being together. Let me bring you up to speed on Ecclesiastes for those of you who haven't been with us and for those of you who have forgotten. The, the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, who calls himself the preacher, we believe it's Solomon, the king of Israel. He, he is taking us on what one preacher calls uh, uh, the good life experiment. He's seeing how do I find fulfillment and purpose and pleasure uh, in, in life? And so he's chased education and learning, and he's chased wisdom and insight. He has chased work and creation. Um, he's gained much, and he's accomplished a lot, and he's built cities, and he's gathered much wealth. He's chased conservation and nature, building ponds and gardens and planting vineyards and creating life. And he has chased pleasure through wine and through music and through sexuality. And at the end of all of this pursuit, what he has gained, what he has gathered, what he has understood is this, everything under the sun is hevel, right? It's, it's smoke, it's vapor, it's vanity, it's wasting away. You can't actually grasp it. It has no true substance and it doesn't actually ever fully fulfill you. It's just going to be taken away from you. You can't get your hands on it. Whatever you gain, you will lose. Nothing lasts. You'll lose it in this life or you'll lose it when you die. And two weeks ago, he says, there's a time for everything. All the disquiets and all the delights of life, the good things and the hard things, there's a season and a time for all of these things. And you can't control when those seasons come and when those seasons leave. But there is one who does control that. There is one who is not under the sun, but who is above the sun. There is one who is not controlled by the hevel or the vapor of life, and one who instead holds the sun in his hands. He is eternal. He is lasting. He never fades away. And the author of, of Hebrews here, the preacher, says, because of that, here's what I've determined. Here, here's what we should do because of that. We should be joyful, and we should take pleasure in food, and in drink, and in toil, and we should continue to do what is good to do. Then last week, we had the sobering reality of him just talking about dying. That ultimately, you can do good all your days, you can be joyful all your days, take pleasure in, in food, and in drink, and in toil, but at the end of the day, you're going to die. Like every animal, just like your pet goldfish and like the cow in the field, you will die one day. And from this, he transitions us into chapter four. 
Last week he talks about death and oppression, and in chapter 4 he begins with oppression. And, and at first glance, you feel like perhaps the emphasis is this oppression. Perhaps the first few verses resonate with you greatly at what the preacher is saying here. Our pe- people that I love dearly, people who, who are family to me, are, are, are abuse survivors. Survivors of oppression. I've walked through that with my wife and with my daughter and with others that I love. People that are gathered here with us in this pavilion today. Members of our church are abuse survivors. Some of you suffered under great oppression as children. Some of you suffer under great oppression within your marriages. We have people in this very place, in this very moment, who are survivors of these abuses. And so I just want to recognize that with with care for a moment this morning. What the author begins with here today could set all too closely to your heart. Because he says this. Again, verse 1. I saw all the oppression under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The author recognizes there's oppression. It's everywhere. Governments oppress and armies oppress, social classes oppress, ethnicities oppress and races oppress, bosses oppress, parents oppress, spouses oppress, siblings oppress, cruel people, evil people, sinful people, sometimes even church people or Christian people oppress. It's all around us. And as he witnesses it, he sees those who are oppressed by themselves in tears with no one to comfort them, with no one to care for them. He, sees that, he says, I see the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And he determines this, church. Those who have already died are better off than those still facing the oppression. Perhaps you've been there. That feeling of it would be better to simply be dead than to keep facing this. The pain is too great. I would rather die. And then he takes it a step further and he says, better still than having faced oppression and died is to have never been born in the first place and had to witness oppression at all. The lucky one is the one who's never had life, he says. And perhaps that resonates with you. I've sat in conversations with people. As they said, why did God ever allow me to be born? I wish I never would have been born. It would have been easier, better for me had I not been. Scripture tells us that both Jeremiah and Job 
curse the days that they were born because their suffering was so great. So if you find yourself in that place of deep, honest, crying out in despair over your oppression, over your pain, over your abuse, know that you're in good company. You're in good company. Even godly men of Scripture have found themselves in this place. But before we go on into this text, let me just say, I'm sorry. If that's where you're at, I'm I'm sorry. Your abuse and your oppression is not okay. It is not okay. And I want you to know that when you're at your most broken place, the weakest night, the place of wishing you were dead or having never been born, when you're there, God is near to you. The scriptures tell us that he's near to the brokenhearted. The scriptures tell us that he sees and knows and will judge all the wickedness. The scriptures tell us that he will make all things new and will seek out what has been lost. And the scriptures tell us that one day, if you are his child, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. He sees you, and he sees your tears, and he hears your cries. He knows your fears and your pains and your thoughts. He knows. And I'm sorry. Now, the author's main point of this text is not oppression, though. The Bible speaks to God's hatred of oppression plenty, but here, the main point is not oppression, but isolation. Isolation. Isolation in the midst of oppression is perhaps the greatest pain of the oppression. They had no one to comfort them, he says. And again, he repeats, no one was there to comfort them. They're alone in this. He says it's better to have died or to have never been born than to face oppression in isolation by yourself all alone. After all, this is what makes oppression so powerful. You feel alone in it. No one knows. No one cares. No one can help. No one cares to help. We know this is the author's focus. Isolation is his focus because he follows up his portion of oppression, of being alone in oppression, by giving more examples of isolation. He says in verses 4 through 6, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and casts, and, and excuse me, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handful, two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. In verses four through six, he addresses the workaholic and the lazy man. In verse four, you have the workaholic who labors endlessly out of envy for what others have. This is the person that spends long hours a day working hard simply to keep up with the Joneses. He always has to have another deal, um, another toy, another pleasure, and not solely because he wants more, but because he wants to beat other people at what they're getting. There's envy. He wants what his brother has. He wants what his, uh, she wants what her sister has. They want something more. They want what is better than everyone else. And so they spend all of their days pursuing more stuff, working harder, gaining what they can get to get ahead of everyone else. And in the midst of this, 
In the midst of this, this person isolates themselves from everyone in their envious pursuit to beat out everybody else. They use people. They run over people. They gloat over others. They have no time for people because they're too busy working to beat people. And in the midst of this, they become isolated and alone. Some of you have been there. You've gained everything there is to gain in the world through working, and yet you look around you and you've lost all the people that were with you. When we were planting our first church, Freshwater, we found ourselves in this situation, or I should say, I found myself in this situation one night, laying in bed. The church was growing really fast. Everything was really exciting. I was spending crazy long hours in the midst of that, and my wife rolls over, looks at me, and she says, am I still an adventure to you? In the midst of the pursuit of gain to run over the competition, to be a faster growing church and to grow more people and to advance mission, even things that had godliness to them, I actually began to lose relationships around me. In verse five, he talks about the lazy person who sits at home with his hands folded, eating his own flesh. The idea is this person's not happy either. Right? If, if, it, if it's not the answer to spend all of your days and hours working really hard with envy in your bones to outpace someone else, if that's not the answer, the answer is also not sitting at home with your hands folded doing nothing. That's not the answer either. Their laziness does not contribute to community and it does not provide for others. They're isolated by their apathy and by their withdrawal. And he says in verse six, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. One commentator said on this verse, quietness, the quietness that Solomon is referring to here, quietness is not inactivity, but reasonable and reasonably motivated labor. Work is good if it is done appropriately in a fitting way. Rest is good too if enjoyed fittingly. All right, his point is there's a way to work and there's a way not to work. And there's a way to rest and there's a way not to rest. And spending all your days and hours working hard and running over people for personal gain is not the right way to work. Work a reasonable amount for a reasonable reason. And sitting at home with your hands folded doing nothing is not the answer either. Though rest is good and there should be days that you sit at home with your hands folded, doing so out of isolation and out of desire, and lack of desire to actually go give any profit to the world is not the right reason. And he goes on, verses 7 through 9. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Now, if you remember back to chapter 3, in chapter 3, verse 13, it, he told us, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 3, 13, he told us, take pleasure in drink and food and toil. And in chapter 3, verse 22, he says, nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his work. 
And yet here in chapter four, what we're seeing is that there's a way to take pleasure in work and there's a way to not take pleasure in work. Myers says of this in his commentary, Solomon seems to be affirming the significance and value of work, but only when there is someone for whose sake you are working. There is value and significance in work, but only when there is someone for whose sake you're working. In other words, the preacher is saying, have have you ever stopped and asked why you're working so much? Why you're striving so hard? What you're chasing after? Have you ever stopped and asked, who is this for? Who am I giving to? In what way am I benefiting others with this? Or is it only in a pursuit of more gain for yourself? The pleasure of toil comes when you toil for the good of others in the company of others. When you toil alongside someone for the good of someone. Now work becomes pleasurable. Ultimately, work is an act of love. You work to provide for another. You work to give to society. You work to care for others. You work as worship of God. Work is pleasurable when work is an act of love towards others. And then he goes into verses 10 through 12 and gives us practical ways that two are better than one. This whole chapter is a a confusing arithmetic process. It's like it's better to be zero than to be one in oppression. It's better to be um, two than to be one when it's cold. It's it's a lot lot of arithmetic, and I was really bad at math, so that's as far as we'll get into it. Verses 10 through 12, practical ways that two are better than one. He says this, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So in verse 10, he says, listen, it's good to work with someone else, along with someone else, by someone else, because if you fall, they can pick you up. Very practical, right? You get hurt on the job, someone's there to help you. You get lost on a hike, someone's there to help you. You, Whatever you're doing, someone's beside you. It's better for you because they can help you if you get hurt or vice versa. Verse 11, he says, it's good to sleep with someone when it's cold. Now, this is not the selling point to this emphasis for me because I'm extremely hot-blooded. For me, it's good to sleep by yourself all the time king-size bed so that you have complete space between the two of you once it's time to fall asleep so that you don't sweat through the sheets. So this is not the selling point to me for his argument, but it might be to you if you're like my wife and you just are constantly cold, even in the Bahamas last week, freezing. I was like, this is not okay. He says, listen, if you're sleeping, it's better to sleep with someone to keep you warm. And then he says in verse 12, It is good to walk with another for protection, right? If someone's trying to mug you, it's good to have a friend by you. Better yet than one friend is to be with a group of people. You've been there. You're like, hey, stay in a group. Everyone stay in a group. You're walking through, especially like a foreign country or a rough part of the country, a rough part of the city. It's like, hey, stay in a group. Be with someone. It's safer. He makes a great point. You're like, oh, yeah, I see that. He's making argument after argument about why it's better not to be in isolation. Why it's better not to be by yourself. 
And then look at verses uh, 13 through 16 as he wraps this up. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he had led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Here we find the illustration of an old king who has many followers, but no friends. An old king who has many followers, but no friends. He has people under him, but no one beside him. He tells people what to do, but no one speaks into his life. He worked hard to climb out of nothingness into the throne. And yet, without any true community of friends with him, he'll be forgotten. And all he has accomplished was a chasing after the wind. As one writer said, being a leader of a multitude is no substitute for being involved in a real community of peers. Right, this man arrived, everyone has to do what he says, everyone's following him, but he's all alone. He's all by himself. Perhaps Martin Luther summarized this chapter well when he said this, the meaning is that it is better to be in association with others and to enjoy things in common than to be a solitary miser who only cares about himself and grabs things for himself. In society, there is mutual help, common work, and common solace. Church, there's a clear lesson that we see in this text, a very clear, glaring lesson for us, and it is this. It is not good for man to be alone. In the words of God, it is not good for man to be alone. We are to live with others and live for others. Isolation only makes life under the sun feel even more hevelish, even more fleeting. These are valuable, good lessons for us. Right? But, but here's the reality. Thus far, these are lessons we could teach you without the Bible. Right? These are really good lessons, great things to learn and to apply. Do life with other people, for other people. It'll make you happier. Right, psychology would teach you this. But how does this apply uniquely to those of us who are followers of Jesus? To those of us who have been purchased by the blood of Christ? How, what does this do for us? What is the unique understanding and takeaway for us? I'm very glad that you asked me that. Isolation is the result of living in a world that is under the sun. Isolation is the result of living in a world that is under the sun. If you remember in Genesis, God created Adam and Eve, and he saw that it was good for them to not be alone, and so he put them together. He makes Adam, Adam's by himself. He goes, hey, that's not a good thing. He makes Eve, he puts them together to help each other, to, to be with each other, to be partners with each other. Community immediately formed. He calls for them to have children so that community grows. But the fall happens. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and the result was isolation. Chapter 3, verse 8, we see that they were, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we see that they were isolated from God. 
And in Genesis chapter three, verse 16, they were isolated from each other. When sin came, isolation came. But also in that account, in Genesis 3, there was a promise and a hope. In Genesis 3, 8, God comes walking through the garden looking for those who were hiding from him. Literally, in their sin, they had taken themselves and they had hidden themselves from God. They were hiding in the bushes, trying to get away from him, isolating themselves in their shame. And in the midst of their isolation, God comes walking, looking for them, seeking them out. And for the first time in all of scripture, we see the God who pursues, the God who comes, the God who seeks, the God who rescues. Every one of us in this shelter, in this park today, who have been made right with God, have been made right with him because he came looking for us. He sought you out. He chased you down. He overwhelmed you with his kindness and his help. You weren't saved in your own isolated attempt at salvation. He came to you and saved you. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he tells Satan that he will put enmity between him and the woman and her offspring. And we get the first promise of Jesus who would come, who would come and lay down his life for his bride, the church, his community, so that he may adopt those who are far off to himself, so that he may bring in close those who are isolated in their sin, so that he may make a family out of isolated wanderers. And all throughout scripture, we see this playing out. All throughout scripture, we see echoes of Ecclesiastes chapter four playing out. God sees the tears and he hears the cries of the oppressed and the suffering. In Exodus chapter two and three, the people of Israel were weighed down under the oppression of Pharaoh, 400 years of oppression. And in chapter two, verses 23 and 24, he tells us that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to me. I heard their groaning and remembered my covenant. God saw the people of Israel and it says, and God knew. And then he tells Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. He heard their cries, he saw their tears, he witnessed their suffering, and he comes to rescue those who are oppressed. Jesus wept on behalf of those who suffered the disquiet and the grief of death. In John chapter 11, Jesus not only comes to rescue grief and death by raising Lazarus to life after he had died, but he also sits in the grief with the family and he weeps. If you remember in John 11, 33 through 35, it says Jesus saw her weeping, right? His friend, he saw her weeping and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he wept with her. He saw her tears, heard her cries, was moved and cried out in tears with her. Jesus regularly came to the side of those who were isolated. At the wedding feast, when social isolation threatened the family who ran out of wine, Jesus joined into the work and made water into wine, restoring the, their reputation. When the leper, who was isolated from all of society, came, Jesus touched him, something he had not experienced in years. When the blind man, who was thought to have been blind because of his sin, 
Jesus' very own disciples thought this, Jesus reached out and healed him. When the lame man who laid by the side of the pool said, I have no one to help me into the water. Do you hear his isolation? Laying by the side of the pool, unable to walk. I have no one to help me into the water to be healed. Jesus walks by and goes, you don't need water. You have me. And Jesus touches him and he heals the lame man and returns him into relationship. When the sexually broken woman came to Jesus at the well at noon, isolated from all the other women in the middle of the day because of her sin, Jesus saw her, knew her, and cared for her. When the little children tried to come to Jesus and the adults pushed them away, Jesus said, no, no, let them come to me. Don't isolate them. Just because they're children, don't push them away. Bring them to me. When Peter had denied Jesus three times, and he must, he must have felt so isolated from Jesus in his own shame, Jesus came to him on the seashore and said, do you love me? And while you and I were isolated from God because of our sin, Jesus died and he rose again that we could be reconciled to him, adopted by him and welcomed as his sons and daughters, no longer isolated from him. He came to us. Just as God came walking in the garden, Jesus came walking in the dust of this earth, tempted in every way we are, yet he did not sin. And he knew isolation. When praying, a friend betrayed him. And when arrested by the mob, all of his friends left him. When on trial and being beaten, his closest friend denied him. When hanging on the cross, his father forsook him. He knows isolation. And when dying, he cried out, it is finished. The work that you and I could not do on our own, he came and did for us. The Bible echoes Ecclesiastes 4 all throughout it, that the isolated are brought near and made family by the very work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so today, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never been welcomed into his family through faith, scripture just says, confess that he is Lord and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Sounds really complicated, doesn't it? Just believe and confess that Jesus is God, that he raised from the dead, and he forgives you of your sins. He welcomes you into his family. And then briefly, church, I believe I would miss a great and beautiful point if I did not point out the beautiful gift of the church the beautiful gift of the church. The gospel of Jesus not only offers us a brother and a father and a friend in God, but the gospel of Jesus offers us an eternal family in the church. There is truth to this passage no matter who you're working with. It doesn't have to be a believer in Jesus who's working beside you when you fall down. They can help you up. It doesn't have to be a believer in Jesus who is helping keep you warm or is rescuing you from oppression. Anyone can help with that. That is true. And what a gift of God's common grace in that. But there's a unique gift in the people of God rescuing each other from isolation. There's a unique gift in the people of God rescuing each other from isolation. Every human relationship is hevel. Every relationship under this shelter will end at some point. It will end because life changes move you away from each other. 
or they'll end because of disagreements and, and arguments. They may end because life stages are just different. They may end because of sickness separating us. They may end because of death. But every relationship under this shelter will end under the sun. It's all heaven. And yet, and yet, because of the promise of eternal life through Jesus, we know that each of these people who have trusted in Jesus with their life, have trusted in his life, his death, and his resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins, each of us under this shelter who have done that will actually get to spend eternity with each other. We'll actually get to spend eternity with each other. We will get to find pleasure in food and in drink and in toil together for all of eternity. You, you can't get away from me forever. You're like, I'm kind of, kind of frustrated. I need some distance. Enjoy your distance because there'll be a day there is no distance. Now, praise the Lord, that day there'll also be no sin, which will make it a lot more enjoyable, won't it? But we're together. If you're a follower of Jesus, we are stuck with each other for all of eternity. Which makes what we are doing this morning and what we do in our community groups and what you do when you sit down for coffee with a brother or a sister in Christ, what we do when we play games together and we do chores and work together, it makes what we do in these moments really, really beautiful things. In fact, what we're doing right now is we're getting a little bit, a, a little taste of a heavenless heaven. We're getting a little taste of a heavenless heaven, an eternity where life will not slip through our grasp, where gain is not vapor and where death is not fleeting. We, we get this heavenless heaven, just a little taste of it when we gather together. And so what a gift it is for us to be here as the church and to be a people together in this. In this place, with these people, we're getting a glimpse of what life above the sun is. In a way, today, in this moment, we've caught the wind. We've caught the wind. He keeps saying life's like chasing the wind. In a moment, we, in a way, we're tasting what it looks like to catch the wind when we're together. That day's coming. What a beautiful day that will be. So church, today, as we come together and we take communion together, and we sing one more song together, and we have a benediction together, and we eat food and drink drink and play games and talk together. May we remember that amidst all the isolated hevel of this life, there is a taste of lasting relationship in the church. The church is our reminder that because of Jesus, one day we will be freed from the hevel under the sun. So may we enjoy this gift together today. In a moment, we'll take communion. Today, we have two tables. It's going to be a little bit of chaos. Right? You don't have clear aisles to walk out of. You're going to have to push and pull and be patient with each other. Let's work on the patient part, not the push and pull part. If you're like in the middle of the room, there's like a crack running down here. The, this side, you all can go around this way. Over here, you can come around this way, send you out the back and around the, around the pavilion, and you'll come in from the outsides is how they have the tables set up. And then you can go back to your seats just up the middle, all right? You'll receive hand sanitizer for your hands. 
You'll receive um, your bread and your juice. You can take that as you will. If you are a follower of Jesus who has placed your faith in him, you've confessed Jesus as Lord, you believe that God raised him from the dead, you are his child, we invite you to come take with us. If you've not yet done that, then the invitation to you today is to remain in your seat. Watch the family of God united together. Come and take this. And then we pray that you would take Jesus today. Put your faith in Jesus today and find an eternal family and an eternal father. Let me pray for you, church. Jesus, you are kind to us and you are good to us. As we take this, may we remember that because of your blood on the cross and your resurrection from the dead, we have been promised an eternal family. Isolation is not our future. We are welcomed unconditionally and beautifully and fully into your family by the blood of Christ. So thank you. Today we take this in remembrance and recognition of that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.